everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. Dr. William Lee will be my guest. He is an internationally renowned physician and author of the new book, Eat to Beat Disease, The New Science of How Your Body Can Heal Itself. And I'm thrilled that he's joining me today, and he'll be coming on in just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some things going on in and around the news, some ways you can take action, and of course, share my weekly recipe with all of you. I know all of you out there share with me the sadness and um, troubling news of all the gun violence that's out there. And I know my show is not about gun violence. It is about food and it is about health and it is about well-being. And it's really hard to have well-being when you send your kids to school and they're, you're risking their lives. Um, it's just, you know, we're living in a really, really crazy time and it just seems like there's no end in sight, and our politicians just don't seem to be willing to take the stand. And if they do, if they're on the Republican side, they risk um, their career. And it's really, um, it's really a horrible thing. People have to realize this is not a political issue. This is a safety issue and really needs to be, um, really needs to be addressed. I wrote a blog last week that didn't go out, which is what I shared this week. But since that time, this weekend alone, there were 13 more mass shootings, 18 more people dead, and 72 more people injured from gun violence. And we really need to get this under control. I don't know the answer. All I know is I'm grieving and I'm sharing the sadness. And we need to keep the sadness for a while until we take some action, because um, what's been happening is that we get sad for a couple of days and then everyone goes back to their same old thing and we forget about it. But we really need to push our legislators and our elected officials to really do something about this and take some action. Um, it's really needed. I wrote about um, protecting our pollinators again. This is also something that has been in the news forever. Um, I don't know what it's going to take for us to set up legislation to make neonics um, illegal or to really make them used in a more responsible way if there's such a thing. But pesticides are responsible for killing massive numbers of bees and other pollinators. And we depend on these pollinators to grow our food. And the fewer pollinators could really you know, affect food prices, um, reduce our access to healthier food, and it's really going to affect food scarcity. That, of course, will hit low-income communities and communities of color, especially hard. So um, please, you know, anytime you see an uh, opportunity to stand up against pesticides and herbicides, right now the Birds and Bees Protection Act is um, being looked at here in New York. Um, it was supposed to be voted on last week with the New York State Senate, and I'm actually not sure what happened. It passed the assembly already. Um, but we really need the Birds and Bees Protection Act to be passed to protect our pollinators. So um, I have links on my website that you can do that. And then I also just wanted to highlight all of you about, um, you know, we've been talking about GMOs for years. We all know that GMO stands for genetically modified organisms, but our 
government decided that it would be a good idea to change the name to um, bioengineered foods and label it as BE so that when you're in the store and you see something saying BE foods, you don't even know what it is. So I just want to let you know that BE um, label stands for GMOs. And it can be very confusing um, as to whether the food contains genetically modified ingredients or not. Many of the labels now are just going to be a barcode where you're going to have to scan it with a smartphone, which is also an um, equity issue because not everyone has a smartphone. So those that do not have smartphones will not be able to get that information. Um, but uh, John and Ocean Robbins, who are the founders of the Food Revolution Network, just posted a great article that I shared in my newsletter, um, what you need to know about GMOs and the whole story. So if you want to check that out, you can. And then I also shared a guide to the Long Island farmers markets, and there's farmers markets everywhere now opening up. And that's the best place to get your fruits and vegetables all season long. Some farmers markets actually go into the winter, but most of them are seasonal. Um, not all of them are organic. So you do want to ask your farmer. You don't want to assume that just because you're buying something at a farmer's market that it is not sprayed with pesticides or herbicides. You really need to check with your farmer. Um, certification of organic is, of course, guaranteeing that it's, being, that it's not being sprayed and that it's being grown in organic methods. But I know there are many farmers out there growing things organically that are not going for the certification. So you just need to ask. Um, I believe the farmer will be honest and tell you. But I do have a list on my website of local Long Island farmers markets. You can also go to the national website, localharvest.org, and find farmers markets and CSAs near you if you are interested in that. Um, so what else? Um, oh, I also want to share that the White House will host its first food insecurity conference in 50 years this September which is pretty exciting. Um, you know, it's something that you would think should be happening every year so that they can talk about food insecurity because it is really an issue in this country. There's no excuse for people not having enough food here in America. Um, I wish I could say the same around the world, but here in this country, everyone should have access to um, healthy food and we know that's not the case. So. This food and security conference in 50 years is um, pretty exciting, and I'm looking forward to that coming up. Um, I want to share with you my weekly recipe. Um, this week, I made a miso salad dressing that was really great. Um, we had a Memorial Day party uh, a couple of weeks ago, and someone brought a kale salad with, this, with a miso dressing that was just delicious. And I didn't get the recipe for his miso dressing, but I set out to make my own and this is it and I'm sharing it with all of you. This is enough for two large lunch salads, possibly even more. It made about three quarters cup of salad dressing. So it's two tablespoons of miso and I use the white mellow miso. Um, you wanna look, if someone is gluten-free, you wanna make sure that you're using a miso that does not have barley in it. Two tablespoons of orange juice, one tablespoon of minced ginger, a half a teaspoon of minced garlic, one and a half tablespoons of rice vinegar, one teaspoon of tamari, one tablespoon of safflower oil, 
one teaspoon of maple syrup, one teaspoon of sesame oil, two tablespoons of tahini, which is a sesame butter, and one tablespoon of lemon juice. And that's it. You blend it together in a mini food processor or in a blender. And um, that's it. Enjoy it. Um, I want to let you know that if you're going to put it on top of kale for a kale salad, you want to um, first massage the kale. I cut my kale pretty small first, and then I just put a sprinkle of or a little drizzle of oil on it um, and then massage it between your fingers until you break down the fibers so that the kale gets soft um, and a little wilty. And then it's much easier to digest and much easier to chew. I don't know if you've experienced getting a kale salad where it just looks like a plate of raw kale, but it's really hard to eat that um, and chew it really well. So anyway, that's my tip for making a kale salad. Hope you all enjoy it. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to all of you, Dr. William Lee. He's an internationally renowned physician, scientist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments and impacts care for more than 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. His TED Talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer, has garnered more than 11 million views. Dr. Lee has appeared on Good Morning America, CNN, CNBC, and The Dr. Oz Show. And he has been featured in USA Today, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, and O Magazine. He's president and medical director of the Angiogenesis Foundation and is leading research into COVID-19. And he's now on the PRN radio station. Hi, Dr. Lee. Hello, Bhavani. Very nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. So uh, your book is amazing. Your TED Talk is amazing. Um, what inspired you to write your book? Well, thank you for asking. Um, you know, I'm a, a, a physician, uh, internal medicine, which means I take care of men and women, young and old, healthy and sick. And I've always really tried to focus on the health part rather than focus on the sick part or to take people back to health if whenever I could. I'm also a scientist. Uh, I'm what they call a vascular biologist. So I study blood vessels, which is what I gave my TED talk on. And um, uh, what wound up happening is that uh, in my uh, work, my career, developing the biotechnology treatments that you've described in my introduction, I realized that there was a much larger opportunity to really not just treat disease, but prevent it in the first place. And I realized that in talking about prevention, we couldn't be talking about drugs. We really needed to talk about something that's safe and affordable and easy to get at, like food. Mm-hmm. But as a doctor and as a scientist, what I realized is that the, the historical criticism about nutritional interventions compared to drugs really was all about the evidence, you know, how strong is it and how much science is there. And this is where I had a completely open-minded uh, view. Well, first of all, I'm kind of a foodie. So I grew up in food cultures. I love to eat. I actually love to cook at home as well. I know you're a chef. And so what I realized though, is that um, if the problem or the challenge was not enough evidence, I could contribute to that because I developed a lot of the systems for drug development. So literally I went to my, uh, you know, my, my wheelhouse really was in actually studying 
uh, stuff you put in the body. So rather than put a drug in there, I actually started to throw foods into the same systems. And so literally, I'm one of those guys that genuinely studies food as medicine. And we could even compare foods and medicine side by side, head to head, and see what they actually did. And so when I started to get these very positive results that here are some foods that could help our body improve circulation, improve stem cells, improve our gut microbiome and, and protect our DNA and actually lower inflammation and, and, and bolster our immunity. Now, of course, you know, uh, in, in the uh, online today, you can hear many influencers talking about these subjects. I'm the sort of still the guy sort of at the ship's prow um, throwing it and the foods in and really looking at the data. So what made me write a book was really that in biotechnology, when you're developing a drug, it might take a decade before an idea winds up becoming practical and realizable. But for food, something that we might talk about on your show today, once somebody hears that, there's immediacy. And so and this is why it's so important for trusted voices to be communicating about nutrition because people can hear something and they can put it into action right away. And there's something wonderful about that. And that's really what made me write uh, the book, Eat to Beat Disease. Yeah, you know, it is, it's so powerful when you, um, when you take health into your own hands. I mean, so many people in our society, you get sick and they just want to call a doctor and take a pill. They don't want to take the responsibility themselves to, heal themselves or look at what might've made them sick. And so um, your book is really great in that way that it really empowers the individual to take that into their own hands and you know, look at what are they eating that could be making them sick and what they can add. And one of the things I love is that you're, you're not all about cutting out this and cutting out that because, I mean, of course you do need to cut out some things. I mean, we all know uh, sugar feeds cancer. And so you want to, if you're, dealing with that, or you want to prevent cancer, you certainly don't want to be on a high sugar diet, but, but just taking that control and knowing that you can impact the outcome of your health is so empowering. And so many people don't know that. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I, um, you know, I come at this from the perspective of a traditionally trained medical doctor where, you know, day one of medical school, not only, you know, we're learning about uh, medicines, drugs that we should be prescribing against the diseases. And really something that always I wondered about when I was um, starting out medical school and all throughout my training was you, I can talk, I'm being taught and I understand how to define disease, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's disease, you know, um, uh, ALS. I mean, you name it, I can actually describe it uh, from an expert perspective. But what, what's a more interesting question is what is health? And that's not taught in medical school, right? You just kind of assume health is defined as the absence of disease. But I always found that incredibly frustrating because you, the absence <laughs> of something makes it impossible to take actions to, to create something, right? So it's kind of like saying poverty is the absence of wealth. Well, so what are you going to do about how are you going to fix poverty, right? So the, the, the reality is that I really have spent my career trying to find operational definitions for what is health. And what's really wonderful is I think, you know, like now we're beginning to really as a global community understand health is not just the absence of disease. That's part of it. But it's actually the, it's actually the result of our bodies 
own health defenses that we're born with firing in all cylinders, working really hard to protect our health. You know, we might be taking it easy and chilling out, but actually from the day we're born to our very last breath, we've got machinery, wiring, cells working inside us as hard as they can, really sweating it out to repel disease and keep us uh, functional. You know, you mentioned um, something earlier uh, in your show about um, the White House uh, Nutrition Conference, 50th year. So I'm actually part of a task force um, advising that. And ah. one of the things that um, uh, is important is that it's not only a White House conference on hunger and nutrition, those are still very important topics. And that's what started this 50 years ago uh, during Richard Nixon's uh, presidency. But actually it's now talking about health as well. And nothing spells out the importance of self-empowerment more than what we've all gone through as humans in the last three years <clears throat> you know, during the pandemic where new disease comes out of the blue, you know, basically envelopes the world uh, and makes everybody frightened. And we see terrible things happening at the very beginning. And guess what? Medical doctors had no experience, had no treatments. There were no drugs. There were no vaccines. And everyone had the same concern at that moment in time. Perhaps, you know, in the last hundred years, this is the one time where everybody's thought about health in, in the exact same way, which is what can I do to protect myself? And this is now a lesson that we can take with us going forward because when there are no drugs, doctors have nothing to prescribe, but everyone can actually be empowered to make those healthcare choices because healthcare is what happens between visits to the doctor's office. You know, the doctor's office usually does sick care but or the hospital, but healthcare is what we do for ourselves. And I think this is where this idea of nutrition, food as medicine really has been delivered right to our doorstep that everyone now has an opportunity at an even sort of on a level, level playing field to basically say, well, okay, so what did I learn? you know, over the last couple of years. Like, why don't, well, let's go ahead and make some good decisions. Mm -hmm. It's funny, I'm actually just coming out of my quarantining from COVID. I had not had it before and I got it and it wasn't, it was a relatively mild case. You know, I, I consider myself pretty healthy, um, but it's the first time I've been sick in so, so many years. And there was a certain part of me that was like, you know what, it's, uh, there's a little bit that's nice. Like when you don't feel good, you appreciate feeling good so much, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, you can still hear it a little bit in my voice, but I'm so, I feel so good. And um, luckily it didn't last very long, but sometimes you need to feel bad to like appreciate how good it is to feel good and how, and motivate yourself to like take all those immune supports and the echinacea and the golden seal and, you know, all those kind of things that, well, you know what they say. They say a, a healthy person has a thousand wishes. A sick person only has one. <laughs> good, good. So, um, what tools do you use to assess your patients? Do you have a Do you have a practice yourself, or are you doing more research? You know, I, uh, well, I, I do all of the above. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I am the uh, head of a global nonprofit, which is where I spend most of my work, and I'm and I'm actually actively doing food is medicine research, but I do have a medical practice. I, I just don't hang a, hang a shingle on my door and, and that's not how I make my living. So, uh, but I do, I do take um, on uh, usually very difficult patients, but how do I assess health is what you're asking, I think? 
Yeah. How do you assess your patient's health and guide them? Yeah. You know, so that's really a great question. Uh, I don't get that question. I don't, I'm not asked that question very much uh, uh, on, in an interview, but it's actually an incredibly important question. Here's how I do it. Um, I think that the first principle I've always had as a medical doctor is to listen to the patient. You know, uh, everybody has a different uh, uh, reason that they're coming to a doctor. Everyone has their own sets of priorities and things that are on their mind. And honestly, that's one of the most important things that can happen between a doctor and a patient is that the patient is communicating and the doctor is listening, taking it all in, and really at the same time processing what we're seeing, what we're hearing, and what we need to be thinking about in the minutes or uh, you know hours ahead. Um, and I know that sounds common sense, but it's not often done. You know, a lot of people come in and say, well, I've got chest pain. Okay, well, let's do an EKG, you know, to see if you've got a problem with your heart. But really, um, what I, my approach is really to try to understand what is it that um, concerns someone. And what might be going on actually might be something very different than the concern. But I, I always think, listening to the person is number one. Number two, <clears throat> you know, you can actually... Um, infer a lot from how somebody appears. That's another really important assessment. And, you know, I mean, I think anybody can do this. You don't have to be, uh, I'm a health professional. If someone looks depressed, you can tell. If somebody looks like they're sickly, not doing well, you can also sense that as as well, right? I mean, think about it when we were school kids, you know, or in high school, you know, when that kid came into the class and he was gonna sick out, get, get sick, you know, you knew that person wasn't doing very well. And I think that using our eyes to take in information is also really important. You know, it's almost kind of an, a lost art in healthcare uh, where people don't listen enough. They don't use the senses <laughs> to try to figure out what's actually going on. But I think that, you know, the other thing that I really, um, and obviously there's like a checklist of things, kind of like an airline pilot that a doctor has to do to do a, a, an efficient assessment. But the other thing that I really try to do is try to ask people about their, how they live. And to me, that's a lifestyle. That's it. Well, that's a cipher question. Like, you know, uh, you know, I always ask people like, well, so what do you do for work? Where do you live? Uh, what do you enjoy doing for fun? Or what's been going on in your life? And I'm interested in, in hearing um, about their lifestyle precisely. Um, what do they eat? Do they, how, how do they sleep? Are they getting enough exercise? Are they managing their stress? Um, do they have a social network? Um, you know, what are the things that uh, seem to be making them happy or, or trouble them? And I know we're talking in big, broad generalities here, but all these things wind up um, uh, converging, I think, into me, anyhow, thinking about, well, is there something I can recommend? Let's move the prescriptions and referrals to specialists aside. Is there something I can actually counsel somebody on, on, on the basis of a diet? Um, and by the way, you know, I loved what, how you introduced um, sort of my, my approach, which is <clears throat> obviously when it comes to food and health, it's not just about the food. It's about how the body responds to what you put inside it. Now, if you put junk or harmful things into your body, it's going to respond in a certain way. Uh, and if you put good things in your body, it's going to respond in a different way. And what I 
sometimes give people an analogy of this. Like, let's say you bought a new car and you're really proud of it. And, and, you, and you have to give it motor oil. Are you going to get the cheapest possible oil? You know, the junky stuff that, you know, or are you going to try to get better motor oil? Because at the end of the day, you know that to take care of your car engine, you want to actually treat it really well. And so, so here it is. It's just motor oil. It's just food. Which one are you going to actually choose to the machine, you know, that is your body? So um, I always start by thinking about uh, what to add, what people can add to their diet, um, not just what to cut out. There's plenty of voices out there talking. You know, it takes no time to figure out all the things you should cut out. But I think what's, what's, what people have more difficulty with when it comes to food and health is they associate food with fear, with judgment, with negative things. And I think it's quite the opposite. I mean, I'm sure you appreciate this as a chef. We should be embracing our food. We should love our food and love our health. They should be aligned in the same way. And so that's what I focus on. What are foods that you already love that are actually good for you? And what's the evidence, the science that actually tells that to us? And that actually can help someone feel um, validated in something that they like, justified like in their choices. Yeah, I can make some good decisions. You know, right. and I think that's that's a great start to get somebody on a lifelong pattern of eating healthier. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. I, one of the things that I do is cook for people who are ill. Right. And so I was cooking for this um, client who had breast cancer. And so she was going through chemo and radiation. I said, no, what, I'm going to make you some miso soup. It's really, you know, very healing and then fermentation. And, you know, it's really good to counteract the um, chemo and radiation that you're going through. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh no, my doctor said I can't have soy. And she walks in with a dozen Dunkin' Donuts. And I'm like, your doctor tells you not to eat soy, so you can't have miso, but you're going to eat Dunkin' Donuts? You know, it's just like, you know, this thing of um, doctors telling patients to avoid soy at all costs and not telling them to avoid sugar or or you know, antibiotics in your chicken or any of these other right. things just makes me nuts. Well, well, you know, so this is right where science steps in. I'm glad you brought that up as an example. <clears throat> so uh, although it is quite a popularly held misconception that soy is dangerous for breast cancer, um, as it turns out, the research, all the research <clears throat> shows that soy actually is beneficial and protective against breast cancer. So there was a study of 5,000 women um, in Asia. And in Asia, when you get breast cancer, your women are not told to avoid soy, they're told to eat more soy. Um, so again, there's a sort of ethnocentric, cultural, different perspective. But it's, uh, the study uh, uh, that was done in 2009 actually enrolled 5,000 women. It's called the Shanghai Women's Breast Cancer Study. <laughs> that actually... Um, uh, looked at the whether or not soy was harmful. So they took the women who had the greatest risk of breast cancer. And that was, of course, women who already had breast cancer. And they looked at how much soy that they actually ate. And what, here's what they found in 5,000 women. Women who ate more soy had less mortality. They lived longer. And if the, and if the breast cancer was already successfully treated, women who ate more soy actually had a lower chance of cancer would come back, all right? Uh, and so how much soy was involved in that study to, to have a minimum of effective um, uh, or minimum beneficial effect? 
about 10 grams of soy protein a day. How much is that? It's about a tall glass of soy milk. So again, readily accomplishable amounts of, of food. So then you ask, well, wait a minute. So where did this, like, isn't it estrogen and soy? Isn't that what people talk about? Okay. So this is, I, I, one of the things that I do as a scientist is I love to step in and to try to clear up urban legends. You know, there is no boogeyman, you know, uh, the UFOs aren't invading our space. Let's go ahead and talk about soy and breast cancer. So <laughs> somebody who is well-intentioned heard that soy, which is really a legume. Uh, it's a bean, right? It's a bean, okay. <laughs> has um, uh, something called a phytoestrogen. It's a estrogen-like molecule from a plant, phyto. And then that same person basically understood that some human breast cancers are sensitive to caused by too much estrogen. And so this well-intentioned idea was, well, that must mean that phytoestrogens and human estrogens uh, would be dangerous for breast cancer. And they put it together. And just like the old game telephone, you know, here, herein starts the good idea that happens to be wrong. Right idea, but wrong, wrong conclusion. So here's what the study is. I'm, 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 a, I'm a scientist. So if you look at the chemical structure of phytoestrogen for soy, it's called genistein. And you look at the chemical structure of human estrogen, they don't look anything alike. And in fact, if you do the research and you look at the research, you can see that the plant estrogen blocks the human estrogen. It's like mother nature's tamoxifen, which doctors prescribe all the time. Right, right. right? And it doesn't activate breast cancer cells. Now, is the, and what else, is, what else is this phytoestrogen does? It cuts off the blood supply feeding cancer. So it prevents cancers from being fed. It actually starts, it's a food, so is a food you can eat that feeds yourself, nurtures your healthy cells, but it starves cancer by cutting off the blood supply so the cancer can't grow. Now, and so, so I told you about the 5,000 person study and the benefits to women, because that's really the proof in the pudding, right? That like, okay, so you told me the science. Yeah, but what about in people? I just told you about 5,000 people. Now the critics basically would say, yeah, you just cherry picked the study. You know, this is, this is kind of that contentious debate thing. Yeah, you just chose the study that would, that would prove your point, right? Nope. Subsequent to that, 14 consecutive clinical studies have been done. And in every single study of, of soy consumption and breast cancer mortality, in every case, people who ate soy, women who ate soy live longer. And in no case did women who eat soy die faster. Okay. And so here's an example where, you know, it's really like, okay, it's time to get off the flat earth idea. So yeah. we are, we are now moving forward and this is how science is, right? I mean, for things that we don't know, you're going to discover what's in the bottom of the ocean. You're going to discover what's on Mars or what's on the moon. We have to open our eyes and take in the data to come to these conclusions. And so I'm so glad that you cooked miso because miso is fermented soy, which then gives additional right. uh, benefits to the soy itself. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that with everyone that's listening, because you're right. Um, everyone who has breast cancer is being told still today that they should be avoiding soy and it's just a misnomer and it's not accurate. And um, thank you for setting that record straight. Um, and there's so many foods that are like that, you know, but let's talk about the foods that you really like to tell people to add to their diet, because I think for most people, adding foods are easy, is easier 
and cutting out foods. So, um, so what, what foods are your, are in your, in your regimen? Oh, well, look, you know, so, so because I've been doing this for well over a decade, almost 20 years, I can tell you that there are more than 200 foods that have been discovered that can activate our body's health defense system. So I think let's start by talking about what those health defenses are, because that's where okay. the action starts. So, you know, just like we have five fingers uh, on, on each hand, we actually have five health defenses that are hardwired in our bodies. And these are invisible for the most part. Uh, they're working inside our body on behalf of our health. One of them is our circulation. Uh, and I study angiogenesis, which is how the body grows the circulation. Um, and, and most people don't realize this, but our blood vessel system, you have any idea how many blood vessels that are in, is in your body? How extensive? I know a lot. We have 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels packed in the average adult body. That means if I were to pull out all the blood vessels in your body and, end them, and line them up end to end, it'd form a thread that would wrap around the earth twice. Now, if you pack all this inside under your skin, okay, what you're looking at are the highways and byways that your body transmits the oxygen that you breathe and the nutrients that you eat to every cell and every organ in your body. And that's why this is one of the health defenses, because without good circulation, you're not going to be able to nourish every other cell and keep it alive and healthy. You don't have enough circulation, inadequate angiogenesis, can't grow blood enough blood vessels, your organs die. This is what happens after stroke, after uh, uh, after a, a heart attack. This is what happens when wounds don't heal and diabetes. This is what actually happens while we're aging in many cases as well in the brain uh, or in the eye. Now, the, the other side of this health defense is where you have too many blood vessels. You have, you know, we just need the right amount. Okay, 60,000 isn't enough, miles isn't enough. If you have, if you have too many overage, just like anything else in life, it's all about the balance. Too much of anything can, of a good thing can be a bad thing. In this case, too many blood vessels can leak and bleed. We don't want that. That causes vision loss in diabetes, diabetic um, eye disease, or macular degeneration as we get older. And the other thing these little blood vessels do, I alluded to this earlier, they can feed cancer cells. So we de definitely don't want extra blood vessels. We want to be able to control them. So what are some of the foods that can feed this health defense? And I'm going to talk about the other health defenses in a second. Well, if you want to grow blood vessels for healthy tissues, it turns out that barley, for example, is uh, has got beta-D-glucan, which is a soluble fiber that can actually grow blood vessels. This beta-D-glucan, by the way, isn't just in barley. It's also in mushrooms. And it's in the cap of the mushroom. But even more than the cap of the mushroom, it's in the stem or the stipe of the mushroom. So I always tell people, if, you're, if you love mushrooms like I do, first of all, you can get them fresh. And I encourage people to explore what's coming in, you know, sort of on a seasonal level, because there's so many incredibly various, varied and delicious different kinds of mushrooms. Some are chanterelles. You got the shiitake, you know, and uh, but even the lowly white button mushroom, actually, which I enjoy, actually has a lot of beta D-glucan. But what happens when people buy mushrooms from the market, you get your cutting board out, you, you take your knife and you cut off the stem and you throw away the stem and you eat the, the, the cap. I tell people, do not throw away the stem. The stem, which is actually technically called the stipe, S-T-I-P-E of a mushroom, actually has two to three times more beta-glucan. Wow. 
Now, a lot of cultures, Latin American cultures, Asian cultures, um, village cultures in Europe, they will actually eat mushroom stems, right? You don't throw that stuff away. It's, I mean, you might cut the very end off. It's got a little dirt on it. Everything else, you slice it. And if you don't want to eat the slices, put it into a blender and create a soup, a smooth soup or a puree or right. dissolve it into, you know, put it into a stew. So um, that is actually um, uh, can grow uh, blood vessels as well. If you want to stop blood vessels from growing, there's a whole bunch of things you can actually do. That's like starve cancer. We talked about soy already. Okay. <laughs> soy milk, tofu, miso, natto, um, all kinds of soy products, green tea. The catechins, the polyphenols in green tea, powerful cancer starvers. I've done research, a lot of research on this. Um, tomatoes. Uh, uh, and again, there's another urban legend with tomatoes people have now about lectins and nightshades. All hogwash, okay? And we can clear all that up if you like. But inside a tomato, um, uh, which is also a wonderful source of vitamin C, which lowers inflammation, a tomato actually contains lycopene. Lycopene is a carotenoid, which helps to give tomatoes this, you know, this beautiful red orange color. And the lycopene actually is anti-angiogenic, meaning it cuts off the blood supply to tumors. And again, a study of more than 30,000 men in this case actually have shown that those men who eat two to three servings of cooked tomatoes every week, each serving being about a half a cup worth of tomato sauce, essentially, okay, had a 30% lower risk of developing prostate cancer over 20 years. Okay. So not a lot easily achievable. If I only gave you half a cup of tomato sauce uh, for some pasta, you'd probably ask me for more uh, on it because it wouldn't seem like it's enough. The point is you don't need huge amounts of food. Foods are quite potent in terms of what they can do for you. And so that's actually another example of a food that has anti-angiogenic substance. So that's just one of the health defenses. Well, I have a question though. Yeah. How do you know if you have if you want to grow blood vessels or you want to stop the growth? Here's the best part: your brain doesn't need to know it. Your body is hardwired to know it. So think about this is true for all the health defenses. I'm just talking about angiogenesis, blood vessels, your circulation right now. Your body knows exactly how much, how many blood vessels you need, and how well they need to work. I call that kind of like the the Goldilocks zone. You remember the, the fairy tale for Goldilocks and the three yeah. bears? They're looking for not too hot, not too cold, not too hard. Just not right. Too the just right. Our body knows the just right. So when you actually feed it um, barley or mushrooms, uh, it says, thank you so much. I will just use that to patch areas that need more blood vessels. When you feed it tomatoes or green tea or soy, your body says, thank you very much for that food. It's very nutritious for the rest of my body. But from the, from the perspective of the blood vessels, the circulation, I will use it to just trim off those extra blood vessels that might be around. So another way to think about it is like a landscaper, right? So you can take care of a golf course. If you have areas of the golf course that actually are balding, what do you do? You got to actually just sprinkle some grass seed right into that bald area to grow it back up. Now, on the other hand, if you have a couple of areas where the grass is growing a little too high, you got to mow it back down. And that's basically what the body does the body will do it anyway. Foods that we do bolster that effect. It helps our body do it better, faster, stronger. So that's one of the health defenses, our blood vessel system. And this is, by the way, why it's so important that I'm telling your listeners is that I could have rattled off 
uh, what kind of foods are good for you? Yeah, got green tea and soy and tomatoes and have some barley and you know, have some mushrooms, except without, you could memorize that list, but without understanding what, why they're good for you, you're just left with the list and everybody's got their own list. I want people to understand the why as well mm-hmm. as the what. Mm-hmm. Okay, so circulation was one. Yeah. We have four more, right? <clears throat> yeah, we'll go through a couple of them quickly. Um, another health defense is your stem cells. So when we were all in grade school, right? When I was in kindergarten, my, my kindergarten teacher told me, well, starfish can regenerate and salamanders can regenerate, <laughs> but people can't regenerate, right? Humans can't regenerate. That's what I'm sure you learned that too. So that, that's kind of what I've always thought to be true, right? Wrong. It turns out that that chapter is being ripped out of the biology textbook, thrown out the window. Humans do regenerate. We do it slowly and we do it from the inside out. So we can't grow a new arm, okay? Uh, at least not yet, but we do regenerate our organs from the inside out. If I took a liver, in, uh, a person's liver, and I were to remove two thirds of the liver, leaving only a little nub, that little nub would grow the rest of the liver back. If I took the top of your lung and snipped it off, okay, the rest of it would grow right back and reform exactly the lung. So this is what we're learning. And by the way, your nerves will regrow as well. And we're beginning to really um, uncloak the hidden regenerative potential that our bodies are already hardwired with. So another defense system is our regenerative stem cell system. This is not what you inject in your knee at a corner mall for your arthritis or your tennis elbow or your shoulder. I've been involved with the biotech efforts to develop stem cell therapy. Not ready for prime time yet. I would tell you it does work, but we got probably another decade worth of work to be able to get it to like fly from a commercial perspective. But I can tell you, your body already does it. And what's wonderful, and one of the most jaw-dropping things that I I realize as a food as medicine researcher is that, my gosh, foods can make your body regenerate as well. And so what are some of the foods that can help stimulate regeneration? Well, dark chocolate, which is a plant-based food. Cacao comes from a seed pod. I don't know if you've ever... um, wrangled a, a cacao pod. A friend of mine uh, sent me a cacao pod, a, a box of cacao pods. You know, they're, they're about the size of a football, uh, about the weight of a football as well. And, um, uh, and you open it up and there's these pods inside it with a little bit of fruit around it. And you, and the fruit comes off. You can actually eat the fruit. So if you were in a shipwreck on a desert island and had cacao chocolate trees or cacao trees, you'd pluck pluck them off and you'd have a lot of food. And then the nut inside it, the seed, you dry it and then you ferment it. And that is the beginning of making dark chocolate cacao. All right. Now, what's really interesting is that this plant-based food is the core essence of making chocolate. Now, chocolate is a confection. You put in some milk, you put in some sugar, you put in a whole bunch of, you know, the typical candy bars got a lot of unhealthy saturated fats and all kinds of artificial flavorings and additives and stuff like that. I'm talking about a good, solid, dark chocolate uh, bar, like block of dark, dark chocolate, 85% or more. It, you know, it's, it may have some other stuff in it, but it's mostly good stuff. That has been studied in humans looking at um, a, a cup of, hot chocolate made with 85% dark chocolate drank, uh, consumed twice a day in 60 year old people who have heart disease. 
Okay. And they need to regenerate their circulation. They need better blood flow and everything else. So, and so you can measure stem cells from their blood. All right. Then you give them two cups of dark chocolate to have every day for a month. All right. Um, so one in the morning, one in the evening or two in the evening, and you can double the number of regenerative stem cells in your bloodstream with dark chocolate. That's the only intervention. Wow. And it actually improves the blood flow. It actually, you know, makes your circulation work so much better. And that's how you can regenerate. And by the way, you know, I, I, I'm sort of saying this, I hope not out of school, but a lot of people, I, I was one of the researchers at the beginning of the pandemic that discovered COVID actually um, is not just a lung disease, uh, airway disease, it actually damages your blood vessels. So one of the things that we're working on now is actually using dark chocolate and other forms of of um, uh, blood vessel and regenerative stem cell repair to really try to heal, help people heal after recovering from about with COVID because there is uh, some uh, blood vessel damage that actually can occur in almost everyone. So your stem cells play an absolutely critical role um, and we can actually use foods uh, to do that. Here's another food that actually can stimulate and protect your stem cells, goji berries. You know, this little tiny orange. Goji berries. Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, I visited my great uncle once in China who lived at the base of a tea mountain. He, he lived to 104 completely intact by himself. And uh, he attributed his longevity to drinking tea. But one of the things I'm telling you about is that he once gave me a cup of tea that had goji berries in it. Okay. And then I was always wondered like, well, what's why goji berries They make it a little, it's got a little sweetness to it. Um, uh, but it's got zeaxanthin, which is another bioactive. That's the other part about food as medicine research. People like me are actually figuring out what actually is in the food. So within goji berries, there's hundreds of bioactives, but one of them is called zeaxanthin. Zeaxanthin is good for the eye, helps prevent uh, vision loss. Um, uh, uh, but the other thing it does is it protects your stem cells. So goji berries can be very helpful for stem cells as well. And here's another one. <clears throat> it comes out of the Asian market. Um, uh, and that is Chinese celery. So uh, if you go to create your tuna fish salad or whatever, right? You go to, you get the big standard stocks of thick stocks of, of celery and chop them up. I actually love celery and, and I love the root of celery. So celiac root. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and by the way, here's another myth about celery juice being super helpful for healthy for you. Celery juice, I mean, celery is quite healthy because it's got a ton of dietary uh, fiber. It's got a stringy. Celery juice is just mostly water. It's got a, some minerals in it, um, but celery roots got a whole bunch of great stuff in it. But, um, uh, the, but there's something special about Chinese celery. Chinese celery, which is tall and thin and a little floppy. It's not, you know, you, you, you can't raise a flag with it with the Chinese celery. It's, it kind of will bend over um, and it's much more potent. If you were to break open a, um, a, a piece of Chinese celery and smell, you could smell it from an arm's like the wake. Yeah, Wonderful yeah. celery smell. That has a substance called NBP. I'm not going to bother your listeners with the long tongue twisting Latin, uh, Greek and Greek uh, name for it, NBP. Um, okay, I will. N-butyl thalide. Um, <laughs> but that substance in Chinese celery stimulates stem cells. And in China, the FDA of China ran clinical trials, and it's so powerful that they've approved the NBP that originally came from Chinese celery 
as a treatment to regenerate brain after a stroke in China. Wow. So that's not food as medicine. That's that's medicine from food. But the, it came from the food, right? So again, you know, that's one of these stem cells. These, that's one of the health defenses that we need to pay attention to. Many other foods can, that can also stimulate uh, regeneration. Mm-hmm. Actually, that leads me to one of my other questions um, about supplements. I mean, many people can hear this and say, okay, well, I don't want to have to eat all that stuff. What can I take that has, you know, the goji berry, a goji berry pill? Can I take a um, lycopene pill? Can I take, a, you know, all these different, you know, I'd much rather take a handful of pills and know that I'm covered. Um, what's yeah, your take on Yeah, that? no, that's a, I'm glad you asked that. So I have a point of view. First of all, I'm not against supplements. I think supplements can be very useful, but I think it's important to really be um, clear the word supplement literally means to top off, right? You're topping off, which means that you're just getting your regular, most of it from your food. And because I enjoy food, and I think that, you know, this is something that besides learning about the health and and all that stuff, I mean, and the science behind it, I, I actually think that we should be teaching people how to, you know, maybe we've gotten to a point in human society where what we need to do is slow down a little bit and go back and sort of just try to learn how to enjoy our food again. And bring people together around the table. Bring people around together the table. You eat more slowly, take in less calories, share, eat more diverse foods, exchange knowledge, you know, this tribal knowledge. I mean, this wisdom and, and, you know, food is, you know, it's, it, we're, we are not puppies, you know, where you basically just, when the bell rings, you walk over to a metal bowl and somebody puts kibble in it. And yet, you know, many of us, um, eat to live as opposed to traditionally people lived to eat. They really enjoyed their food. And I think that this is something that people who appreciate the healthful benefits of food, but also to appreciate cooking food, buying food, serving food. There's an incredible um, warmth that I think food provides. And so to your, to your question about the supplements, you know, can you, eat, can you have a lycopene supplement, zeaxanthin supplement, um, uh, 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 you know, a, a cacao, a proanthocyanin supplement. Sure. Absolutely. You could, but wouldn't you prefer to have, you know, um, a, a lovely tomato sauce or a virgin bloody <laughs> Mary, or just a simple or a Capri salad, Caprese salad, or would you, uh, wouldn't you prefer to actually have, um, something slivered with dark chocolate and made into a beverage you could have with your family or your friends or just by yourself sitting by sitting reading a book i mean that's what i when i see when i talk to patients like they do ask me like all right docs so give me like the 10 supplements i should be taking and i and i said i'm happy to give you a list of supplements but i would prefer that you really understand supplements are topping off if you can't get enough from your diet uh, then then sure let's top it off but let's start with diet let's figure out how to build right. it up and that's when i ask people what do you love to eat this is how I approach this. What do you love? And, and so they're usually startled. They're like, well, aren't you going to tell me what to cut out? Cut out my alcohol, cut out my sugar, cut out my carbs. I'm like, no, no, no. There's, there'll be time for that if we get to it. Let's talk about what you do love. And, and because I'm, I'm, I'm game to do this with them, uh, and I know in my head what are good things, like I will eventually find two or three or four or five or even more healthy things that they already eat. And I'd give them real encouragement. 
Yeah, my mom used to make it. Cool, my mom too. How did your mom make it? You know, like once you get people to talking about the stuff they love, it takes their mind to a different place mm-hmm. where they're not thinking so clinically about their food and they're not thinking so clinically about their health. And I think that's really what I'm trying to do with my book, to be Disease. And, you know, like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, um, there's so much information. Like I, I started to make just information available uh, through my website. Just please download stuff, uh, free downloads, and you can actually find out more information on foods and medicine and tips and recipes and things that I, you know, come out of my world that I'm, I'm privileged to actually have this time to speak with you, but there's so much more that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Well, one of the things I want to, because I, we are getting close to the end, I want to make sure we have time to talk about your master class, because that's an opportunity for you really to share your knowledge with everyone. So can you share about your master class? Yeah. So look, um, I started to realize that uh, there's something that I could do, uh, contribute for free to the world uh, uh, about food and health, because as a doctor, two years ago, I realized there were no prescriptions to write, but there was incredible knowledge that I had to share of what could you do to improve your circulation, help your body regenerate and recover, help gut health, which a lot of people are, care a lot about. What about the antioxidants? You know, people who are getting chemotherapy, like how do you protect yourself against the damage? You know, or even from ultraviolet radiation, the changing climate, um, uh, and how do we actually lower inflammation, which a lot of people are really cottoning onto? Inflammation in our body is like, you know, like a wildfire burning in the woods. Like you got to put it out, um, and then your immune system. How do we protect ourselves, not just against you know a pandemic, but against everything else? And you know, our immune system protects us internally against cancer as well. And so, how do we actually? empower ourselves to do this. So I, I put together a masterclass. Um, uh, well, I put together two things. First, I put together a masterclass. Um, it's an hour. And I actually um, talk to people about their health defenses and all the different foods and take people through who may not have known about this kind of like a primer on how I think about um, my body and how I encourage people to think about their body and the foods that can be helpful. And then what the other, and so that's free. I, I've had, you know, it's amazing. I've had uh, uh, one of my masterclass, I had 8,000 people from 40 countries sign up for it. Wow. Um, so this is something I do periodically. Uh, uh, every month I do it a few times. Um, come to my website to sign up for a newsletter, get a free download. But the other thing I did, I actually decided for people that want to be serious students of this, and I've had about 2,000 people from around the world, about 30 countries. Um, I developed a, 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 a online course. It's a real deep dive. It's a month long for people who want to kind of take that journey with me and spend time like every week kind of going into it. Uh, and, and what I do because research is continuously changing. Um, I actually do office hours. I answer questions. I share new research uh, information that's coming out. Like for example, here's something um, uh, for your listeners. Uh, last week, there was a, uh, a new, new research study that came out uh, that showed that drinking coffee uh, uh, two to three and a half cups of coffee a day, even coffee that had a little sugar or cream in it, actually lowered overall mortality by 31%. Pretty amazing over the course of a lifetime. And so here's an example of, of you know, something that you could put into work. Now you get, now you get into the fine details. What kind of coffee? Well, it turns out organic coffee, which has not been grown with pesticides, contains more 
of the beneficial stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. I got it too. I got a cup here. Yep. <laughs> What's in it? What's in coffee? So here's where the research comes in. Food is medicine. It's called chlorogenic acid. Chlorogenic acid is made by the coffee plant and it puts it into the coffee bean. But what? why does the plant make chlorogenic acid? Well, chlorogenic acid does a lot of things for the plant. But when the plant is grown naturally without pesticides, what happens in nature? You got little bugs kind of nibbling at the stems and leaves. All right. Now, now growers don't like to see that, but I can tell you the coffee plant, that's just natural. So when the bugs and seeds nibble at the, the the bugs nibble at the plants and leaves, um, it responds to a wound, which is what they're viewing these little nibbled leaves as, as an injury and chlorogenic acids made as a wound healing response. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so you, you get more with organic. So I used to be skeptical about organic. I, I didn't want to pay more money for less bad stuff that somebody else was putting in. Like that to me, I, I was I felt offended by that idea for many years. But then I started to see research that like, no, actually the organics actually, not only they have less pesticides and it's very hard to wash off pesticides. Um, you can't. You, like you can't. Um, you know, the standard apple, for example, which has got a thin skin. Um, if you expose that to pesticides, commercial pesticides, even 24 hours, this was a study done at University of Massachusetts, even for 24 hours, not the whole growing season, okay? And you try to wash it for two minutes using um, sodium uh, baking soda, which is, I think, the classic way that they clean apples before going to the market, part of the manufacturing part of, you cannot, the 20% of the pesticides soaks into the skin, you can't wash off. All right. yeah. And the skin actually has got some good stuff or so like acid you want for, for, for growing blood vessels. And so this is another reason why organic is better. So I, then I started to see um, horticulturalists studying these bioactives that act, activate your health defenses. And I realized, oh my gosh, organic plants are, are, are responding to nature, which is how right. they're supposed to be growing by producing more bioactives and by spraying them with chemicals. Um, we are actually decreasing the amount of the healthy stuff that they're producing. So we're getting less of it. So all of a sudden, my whole mindset flipped. I'm like, okay, I'm happy to pay for organics because I'm getting more of the good stuff right. and less of the bad. And know what? We are just about out of time. And I know you have to run because you have appointments. But I might have to have you on again because I have not gone halfway through my list of questions. But Dr. Lee, thank you so much for the work you're doing. I'm going to sign up for that master class because I can tell you are just a wealth of information that I want to know. So thank you for joining me and everyone out there who's been listening. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope to see you all again next week. Bye, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.